Welcome to the third season of Murder in 20 podcast, where I, Bobby Stevens, am your host with a new episode every Wednesday. If you're a serious fan of true crime and love listening to podcasts, but don't want all that small talk, you've come to the right place. We get right to the facts. Murder in 20 episodes are concise and complete in 20 minutes. Less talk and more true crime. Be sure to like, share, and follow us to learn about upcoming episodes every Wednesday. Thanks for tuning in. In 2000, Dr. Roger Brumbach moved to Omaha, Nebraska, and was a pathologist at Creighton University Medical Center. His wife, Mary, was a pharmacist before attending law school. After the move to Omaha for Roger's career, she took a break so she could travel with her husband and focus on caring for her ailing mother. That same year, Anthony Garcia was a first-year resident in the pathology residency program at Creighton University. Omaha World reported, when Dr. William Hunter joined the university in January 2001 as director of the program, he noticed Anthony wasn't doing well. Three doctors hadn't submitted their review of Anthony, and he knew that was a warning sign. So he spoke to them, and they all said, We're concerned about Anthony, but don't want to put anything in writing. Dr. Chandabutra, who was in charge of the medical center, found him, and I quote, Rude, adversarial, disruptive, belligerent, arrogant, lazy, combative, passive-aggressive, mocking, and mean-spirited. On February 15, 2001, Dr. Butra sent an email to Dr. Hunter detailing Anthony's behavior and suggested he be put on probation and if it continued, his contract should be terminated. But Anthony didn't see it that way. He wrote to Dr. Hunter, too, but claimed Dr. Butra used her position to verbally abuse the residents. He followed it with an email to his chief resident, saying that she had humiliated him and insulted him, and that if she did that again, he would sue. The chief resident forwarded the email to Dr. Butra, who then sent it to Dr. Hunter with a handwritten note saying they had enough to terminate Anthony. Meanwhile, Anthony had performed an autopsy. Afterwards, he was to return the body to the refrigeration chamber. With the help of an assistant, Anthony attempted to move the patient's heavy body from the operating room table to the gurney. But in the move, the patient ended up face down. Anthony made no attempt to flip the body over, and by morning, their face was extremely discolored. The funeral home was outraged and complained to the university. But Dr. Hunter didn't fire Anthony. Instead, he told him his contract would not be renewed, but that he would help him find a spot in another residency program. 
Anthony begged to stay at the university, and Dr. Hunter relented. They gave him specific goals he had to meet. But what none of them knew was that Anthony had purchased a Smith & Wesson 9mm pistol. Within two months, Anthony had dug himself back into a deep hole. A colleague was taking a very important exam when Anthony called his wife, saying that he was urgently needed in a conference and that if he didn't show up, he would be fired. But his wife knew he couldn't be interrupted, so she called an official at the university and discovered it was a lie. Someone overheard Anthony talking about the phone call and reported him. A few days later, Dr. Hunter and Dr. Broomback both signed a letter terminating Anthony. He filed an appeal but lost. Dr. Hunter was a kind person and wanted to help his former resident, so he provided him with a letter of reference and that helped Anthony get accepted into the residency program at the University of Illinois. Then in February 2007, Anthony was hired as a resident at Louisiana State University. But when his boss found out that he'd lied on his application, he was fired. The Lincoln Journal Star reported, that Anthony applied for a license in Indiana, but in January 2008, Dr. Broomback sent a letter to the licensing agency stating that Anthony had been fired for misconduct. His application was denied. Anthony was angry. He vowed revenge. Someone needed to pay. A month later, on March 13th, it was a warm, sunny day. At the Hunter household, Dr. Hunter's wife, Claire, who was a cardiologist, was in Hawaii attending a conference, so he stayed home a little longer to make sure their 11-year-old son, Tom, got on the school bus. After school, Tom returned home to play video games on his Xbox. He slipped off his running shoes dropped his backpack on the floor. Their housekeeper, Shirley Sherman, was working that afternoon. Tom grabbed some poppin' chips and headed downstairs to the basement to play. Anthony drove his silver Honda CRV with Louisiana license plates through the tree-lined streets of the historic Dundee neighborhood, where the sidewalks crisscrossed through the velvet green lawns. Stopping a block from the hunter's home, he strode up to the two-story red brick house. It sat on a slight hill. Terrace steps led to the front door. Anthony knocked. Tom went upstairs, and when he opened the door, Anthony lunged. But Tom ran into the dining room. Anthony pounced and stabbed him multiple times, then planted the knife into his neck. 
Tom fell face down on the carpet. Its color changed to red. Shirley heard the knock and went to see what the noise was all about. Her eyes grew wide when she saw Tom. She turned and ran down the hallway. But Anthony was quick. He caught up to her and stabbed her repeatedly. She fell to the floor. He plunged the blade into her neck. Just after 5 p.m., Dr. Hunter left work and arrived home. He saw his son's running shoes and backpack, then spotted Shirley on the floor. He recoiled at the sight. He knew she was dead. Shirley had been stabbed 18 times. The mother, grandmother, and wife died at 57. Then his mind raced. Where's Tom? He could hear sounds coming from the Xbox. He raced to the empty basement, then ran through the house. In the dining room, he crouched down and touched his son's hand. There was no pulse. He called 911. While he waited, nothing stirred in the house. The only sound, the eerie carnival music from the video game that wouldn't stop playing. Detectives received very few leads, but witnesses reported seeing a well-dressed man in a Honda CRV with out-of-state license plates park a block from the hunter's home and walk up to the door. Police released a composite sketch and an anonymous donor offered a $25,000 reward. A year later, the reward was doubled. Then two years went by, and the case went cold. Anthony went on with his life and managed to find another job. USA Today reported that he became a resident at the University of Illinois in Chicago, but didn't stay long. Then he moved to California, then to Louisiana, where he got a job, but was fired because he didn't hold a license to practice in the state. In 2009, he worked as a contractor, providing medical visits to the elderly in their homes. Then in 2010, he moved to Indiana and for a short time worked at the federal prison in Terre Haute. He applied two more times for a license in Indiana. Both were declined. The last time, was in 2012. Mary Broomback wasn't much into technology, but enjoyed using her iPad to have a video chat with her daughter Audrey in San Francisco and son Owen in Denver. Both had families of their own, and she loved seeing her grandchildren on camera. Roger was retiring, and the couple made the decision to move to West Virginia. They sold their home, and in May of 2013, 
The house was packed with boxes, and the furniture was pushed into the middle of the room so Roger could give the walls a fresh coat of paint. Sunday, May 12th, was a sunny Mother's Day in Omaha. Owen had a video call with his parents. Then that afternoon, the couple took a break from packing. Mary read a novel while her husband sat down to read the newspaper. Then they received a video call from Audrey. Mary's head was tilted on the camera. She hadn't quite got the knack of looking into the lens and Roger, sitting beside her, could be seen occasionally. Audrey teased her mom, and when she responded with a laugh, she took a screenshot to save the moment. Anthony also had plans for Mother's Day, a special day for Dr. Butra, one that she would never forget. The doctor and her husband were out for lunch, when Anthony kicked in the back door of their home. But the alarm went off, and he aborted his plan. The security company alerted the couple, and when they arrived home, the door was slightly ajar. But they didn't see anyone and didn't report it to police. Anthony stopped at a restaurant and used his credit card to purchase a bite to eat. He needed to come up with a different plan. So he turned his revenge towards Dr. Broomback. Earlier at home on his computer, he found the doctor's home address. He drove the CRV to the doctor's home. The neighbors noticed the unfamiliar car cruising slow around the neighborhood and made a note of it. At 3.30 p.m., Anthony stood on the front step, reached up, and knocked. Dr. Roger Brumbach opened it to see a gun. He tried to stop Anthony, but the bullet ripped through his shoulder, torpedoed its way through the door, and landed in the wall behind him. His body turned, and he was shot in the leg. Then a third bullet ripped through his back. He fell to the floor, face down. Anthony tried to fire again, but parts had fallen out and landed on the floor. Anthony grabbed a knife and stabbed Roger six times. Mary heard the shots and ran towards her husband. Anthony met her in the sitting room and attempted to stab her. But she wasn't going down without a fight. She used her hands and arms to try and fend him off. He slashed her wrist and slashed her hands. She fell to the floor in between the boxes. He plunged the knife into the side of her neck. Roger and Mary died at 65. The next day, movers arrived at the Broombacks. One of them grabbed a dolly and headed for the front door. When he noticed, the storm door was closed, but the front door was open a crack. 
He knocked and called out. He walked around to the backyard in case they were there. He returned to the front and opened the storm door and peered in. That's when he spotted the magazine from a handgun and called police. Omaha police arrived quickly. The first officer opened the door a little further and called for backup. They canvassed the neighborhood and a block away, a neighbor recalled hearing what he thought were three gunshots that afternoon. He looked around but didn't see anything. Meanwhile, at the university, Dr. Butcher told a few students about her alarm going off and they urged her to report it. So she did. Police swabbed the door for evidence. It didn't take investigators long to spot the connection between the three doctors at Creighton University. Although the victims had been murdered five years apart, all four were stabbed to death in a similar manner, with the same slashing motions. It made them wonder if maybe they were looking for one suspect. Omaha Police Detective Derek Moyes was assigned to the case and was tasked with pouring through the personal records from the university. When he came across Anthony Garcia's file, he found the termination letter and thought he may have just found a motive. The FBI were brought in and a task force was formed. In July, investigators had Anthony under surveillance. They followed him, and when he drove south on Interstate 57, they were worried. He might be heading to Louisiana State University, a job from which he was fired, and that he might be going there to seek revenge. Anthony was pulled over. Inside his vehicle, they found a crowbar, a sledgehammer, a university lab coat, a stethoscope, and a 45 caliber gun. He was arrested and charged with four counts of first-degree murder and four counts of using a weapon to commit a felony. Anthony pled not guilty. In August, a truck driver stopped on the side of the road, near an entrance ramp onto Highway I-70. When his passenger stepped out onto the road, he spotted part of a gun, laying in the gravel, and called 911. The serial number was a match to the gun Anthony had purchased, and investigators matched it to the parts found at the Brumbach's home. The Beatrice Daily Sun reported that at Anthony's home, investigators found evidence that he searched for the Brumbach's home address on his computer and on his cell phone. They also found he searched for Dr. Beatrice's address on his tablet. They found the credit card receipt from the lunch he'd eaten and his cell phone 
placed him only an hour away on the day of the Brumbach murders. They found an empty gun box with a serial number that matched Anthony's gun found on the side of the highway. And remember that swab police took of Dr. Butcher's door? The DNA came back with trace evidence of skin cells that were a match to Anthony. Then investigators heard from an exotic dancer that knew Anthony. She said that he confessed to her that he'd killed a small boy and an old lady. In October 2016, Anthony went on trial. It had been eight years since Tom and Shirley's murders and almost three years since the Broombach's murders. One of Anthony's attorneys stated on opening day, this case will never leave you. The prosecution had a mound of evidence and the defense tried to poke holes in it. The prosecution showed the jury the screenshot Audrey took of her smiling mother on Mother's Day. After three weeks of testimony, it took the jury less than a day to find Anthony guilty. Nebraska Public Media reported that at his sentencing hearing, Tom's mother told the court, a child of 11 years should never have to lose his life in a fit of anger. And Shirley's brother said, we'll get a sigh of relief upon his death, the sooner the better. Anthony was sentenced to death. He is one of 12 men who reside on death row in Nebraska. Thanks for listening to Murder in 20 with less talk and more true crime. Be sure to tune in next Wednesday for the episode of Alfred and Pauline Carpenter. Kimberly created the Carnival Mafia and alter ego Frank to manipulate her fellow carnies into committing murder. After the rides creaked to a stop, the music faded and the neon lights went dark. Evil oozed out of the shadows. If you're dying to hear more, past episodes of Murder in 20 are available for free at murderin20.com and on all major podcast platforms. We love what we do and are dying to continue. If you enjoy listening to Murder in 20 every week, we'd be eternally grateful for your support by visiting Murder in 20 at Patreon, PayPal, or murderin20.com. We'd like to acknowledge Purple Planet for use of their music, sound effects from Vaseline Studios and Quick Sounds, and our many editorial sources who are listed on our website. Be sure to like, share, and follow us to learn about upcoming episodes every Wednesday. Stay safe, sleep with the lights on, and don't play with strangers. <laughs>